to come. PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. This week we're going to be offering up uh, interviews and a quick recap of the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, uh, an international showcase of literary and self-published comics and graphic novels. Organized actually in an unusual relationship uh, in partnership between the Toronto Public Library and the Beguiling uh, Comic Store, the awesome comics bookstore in uh, Toronto. Uh, it's held at the Toronto Reference Library, a wonderful uh, institution, public institution in, um, in downtown Toronto. Uh, this year, uh, while there was more than 24,000 fans at the two-day institute, uh, on Friday there's a library and educational panel that does professional and really looks at the how graphic novels uh, uh, are are doing in the um, <clears throat> in the educational and the library space. Uh, this this year's show also spotlighted the 40th anniversary of NBM, the 10th anniversary of the Toronto-based Koyama Press, and Image Comics 25th anniversary with an Image Comics Pavilion in the Masonic Temple, a historic uh, Toronto performance venue. <clears throat> Let's see, there were new books by uh, Gary Panter from Fantagraphics, Vetlana Kimikova, um, uh, Metafrog had a new, um, uh, had a version of The Little Mermaid from Paper Cuts. Guy DeLeo was there from uh, 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 signing copies, copies of Hostage from D&Q. <clears throat> uh, in fact, uh, the uh, L&E program, the Libraries and Educational Program, really kind of uh, 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 showcased itself a, a presentation on gender called No Boys Allowed, The Subtle Ways We Gender Boys and Cut Boys Off from Reading by cartoonist uh, Shannon Hale, uh, who used her own books uh, and some data to show um, uh, uh, how books are shamed, uh, how the boys are shamed into reject, rejecting books by girls, and what we can do about it. Uh, and I guess what you can say is also that probably uh, one of the uh, um, really highlights of the show and of L- LGBTQ issues was the Doug Wright Awards, the annual awards presentation for the best in Canadian comics and graphic novels. Um, cartoonist Catherine Collins, uh, formerly known as Arn Asaba, <clears throat> was inducted into the Giant of the North Hall of Fame. Uh, Collins wrote uh, and drew the light-hearted fantasy comic Neil the Horse in the 1980s and 90s uh, under um, under the name of uh, yes, yeah, Arba, um, uh, before she transitioned to female and she gave a moving uh, speech uh, accepting the award. Uh, so we're also going to about to offer you up now. Uh, I'm going to do an interview with Ethan Really, the um, comics creator of Pope Hats, uh, his acclaimed comic series. And Heidi uh, interviewed Graham Chaffee about his new graphic novel, To Have in the Hole, from Fantagraphics. And um, let's see, uh, Pope Hats is, all, is from Ad House. So enjoy. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Well, we're recording live on the floor of the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, really the most awesome comics festival in North America. Uh, it takes place in the, in the Toronto uh, Reference Library. And uh, one of the things I'm getting, I have the pleasure to do of is of interviewing again, even really, uh, he has a new issue of Pope Hats. 
out. I think Pope Hats fans around the world are rejoicing. <laughs> Ethan, uh, thanks yeah, so much for being on More to Come. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks again. for having me. Well, um, I just got it. As you said, my wife got a copy of it, and so I kind of stole it from her, and I only read like the first couple of pages. But once again, I'm really thrilled. I, be- I mean, you're, you become so involved with your characters, man. We have to remind ourselves that they're like, it's fiction. I, think I guess. It, no, it's true. Uh, I mean, I, I can... Uh, I can respect the boundary between fiction and my real life pretty easily, but the fact that it takes me so long to write these stories and they kind of stew in my mind for so many years, uh, uh, I think it affects the way it comes out. So it seems very kind of uh, introverted sometimes, but but definitely, uh, it, you know, the characters are, are kind of almost real to me. Well, I think they're almost real to a lot of people. Um, maybe, I mean, but that's, I mean, you truly bring these characters to life with your writing and your drawing. Yeah. Um, uh, well, uh, let's just go over a little bit. So it's sure. once again, it's a uh, 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 Francis. Uh, the uh, Francis law Garland associate. is a young woman who lives in Toronto. She um, she works as a law clerk in one of the uh, large corporate law firms downtown in Toronto. And uh, her roommate is Vicky Griffin, who's an aspiring young actress. And at the at the point that we get at in uh, Popat's number five, Vicky has actually moved to LA to yeah. become. A pretty successful actress, which is kind of a surprise to everyone. And so uh, the story is kind of about how friendship changes over time, mm-hmm. and and you know whether friendship can can uh, survive long distance. Yeah. Um, you know, Francis is, uh, is kind of super smart, also super likable, but she's in this cutthroat, you know, law firm, uh, kind of the assistant to the big, you know. The big uh, how you say his yeah, name? Castonguay. Castonguay. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a mm-hmm. French name. Marcel Castonguay mm-hmm. is uh, a managing partner at the firm. You know, he has the corner office and he's yeah. been there uh, for quite a long time. So he has his odd eccentricities that he gets away with. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of an odd dynamic that I I found myself and a lot of people um, around me in uh, in our early 20s you know we'd end up in these very very serious careers and it becomes a bit of an existential crisis when uh, you are offered promotions it, it's just uh, you have to kind of consider whether it's something you want to follow up on mm-hmm. and how committed you are to the life so um, hopefully it's something that uh, readers can relate to yeah because I, I see that's one of the new plot threads that there may be a promotion yeah, in her future I mean, it, it's almost backwards because the the crisis is is not inherently negative it's you know it, it's dealing with uh, you know positive opportunities uh, Vicky has the opportunity of following her dreams uh, to be an actress in in Hollywood and uh, the question is whether that comes along with some risks itself mm-hmm. Francis and other people in her um, shoes uh, you know if they do well if they work hard they'll be offered promotions at, at these large competitive firms and and you know that could be a good thing but it could also not sure uh, there's also another tension there's some social tension between uh, Francis and Vicky as uh, um, uh, Francis seems to be hanging out a lot with uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Peter. With Peter, I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's up in the air where it's going. But yeah, uh, I think. It's but there not, was a comment early it's a bit on. Of a cliche. It's like um, they're uh, Francis and Peter, a friend who she probably met uh, through Vicky, um, are sort of going out. It's complicated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that's sort of a, a subplot in the series uh, that's. 
um, it's kind of like uh, I'm not so sure what it's like to be single today, but um, I'm writing it as if I, you know, as sure. if the character Francis was, and and I have an idea of how it might be. Um, you know, people are a bit more sensitive about committing. Sure. Um, but it's, it's kind of one of those relationships. So you get to see over the course of Pope Hatch number five where their relationship ends up. But I mean, we're, we're just giving you the outlines of this. I mean, what I think makes this comic so special is the, I mean, your skill at making your readers connect with um, these characters who, uh, certainly Francis very often is really trying to examine her life and what does this mean? But even this description, I think, doesn't do the texture of your art well. Uh, you have to be experiencing to see how this stuff flows over you and brings you in. Uh, I don't know. Sure. I think you're overstating. Uh, that so may be the truth, but compliment. that's what fans do. <laughs> I mean, that's very nice of you to say. So I how long is it? I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. How long has it been since the last issue? I think it's been over two years. Yeah. I, I plan to finish it quite quickly. Um, you know, you'd think that it'd be quite an easy uh, project to do because the characters are formed. Um, you know, the storyline has already started off. The previous issue would be the middle of the story. So it's just kind of tying up loose ends. But when I was writing it, I found um, I had a very hard time being satisfied with what I was writing. And I ended up writing two full complete scripts and then throwing them out and then starting from scratch so that's kind of what uh, I had a lot of lost time considering that hiccup but um, in the end you know when you take that fresh start it's actually not painful at all it's as soon as you start writing something that's closer um, to what you had in your in your mind it's just refreshing it's 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 kind of invigorating and your drawing style too is also I mean it's it's this interesting combination of cartooniness and naturalism yeah. as well. I mean, I, mean uh, I use a, a lot of rulers for the straight lines <laughs> of like skyscrapers, but also I use brushes for the, the curvy lines. Uh, I like to balance the two. I mean, the only thing I really want to get across is just clarity of what's happening. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, everything else is just kind of a flourish. But, um, you know, I, I, appre I, mean, I appreciate artists that can do a lot with very little, and I almost like, like feel like Ideally, I would have a lot less going on in my art. Well, it's interesting. You you have a real balance. I mean, while it's interesting that your your pages are they're relatively spare, but there's still a lot going on in them. I hope so. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea how yeah. people. Well, I'm telling you, <laughs> react to it. <laughs> At least me. Uh, and 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 the, the this cover cover is really great too. I mean, Thank you. Really... I, I have to say that yeah. um, a dream of mine came true. Uh, in the back of my mind, I had this idea that um, for Popats 5, a perfect cover would be a very simple drawing by me, but painted by Maurice Velcou, uh, who's a Toronto artist that sure. I admire. And who's and I, gorgeous, beautifully colored. Usually. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I don't know him. I, I've said hi to him in the past. I don't know him personally at all. And then I became friends with someone who uh, grew up in the area that Maurice lives in, Toronto. So, you know, we were kind of talking about him casually. And it was just an idea I had in the back of my mind, but it kind of, it felt like it was getting closer and closer to reality. And then I just decided I'll just send him an email out of the blue. Cool. And he totally agreed to it. Yeah. And, and he sent me two versions of the cover, both of which were beautiful and totally oh, different. Oh, wow. 
Um, so it was just a dilemma of, you know, it was a, a dilemma of riches. There. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it, it, well, it's an embarrassment of riches for sure uh, for us, for the fans as well. Well, I mean, I, well, I read, I, I actually skipped ahead and read some of the letters uh, in the back of this one. And I think these letters, they're saying the same things that I'm saying now. <laughs> They're well, just like yeah, I mean, gaga. You know, it's, it's a weird thing about letters. I, I like to include them because um, it almost feels more like you're a part of, like when you're reading them as a reader, it feels like you're a part of the artist's own autobiography. You can kind of see sure. how mm-hmm. they change over time. And um, the letters are also kind of a mixture of people I know. Sometimes I remove their names and mm-hmm. uh, artists I really admire. So it's like, I'm usually a really private person, but I think that's the one aspect where I like to just like share whatever I have. In there front you of me. go. There yeah. you go. Well, uh, well, uh, the, the great thing, of course, is you share this great, uh, great book with us. Um, uh, fans like me, I mean, we, it's great. It's an event when a new issue comes out. Uh, it's really terrific. Uh, and now we just drum our fingers and wait for the next one to come out. I yeah. mean, how uh, how close is the story? I mean, is this a dumb question? How close are we I think, to Well, I think the idea is that you're this wrapping is, it up. If that's I, like, what, I know that you haven't read it. I think the idea is that this uh, this portion is the conclusion to this story. Mm-hmm. Um, when we collect the book. I have some thoughts of what I might do with it, but it might just be uh, the last uh, issues two, three, and five together. But we'll see. Okay. It's just such a wonderful issue. I mean, I, I know I'm gushing, so I'll stop. <laughs> Thanks so much. Guys. Yeah, Ethan, uh, thank you for being on More to Come. Hi, welcome to More to Come, Publishers Weekly's weekly podcast to comics and graphic novel news. I am Heidi McDonald, the graphic novels review editor of Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. I am live at TCAF, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival, our favorite show of the year. Uh, I'm sitting in a semi-cone of silence with Graham Chaffee. You may hear a murmur of Dave McKean talking in the background, but that just comes with the territory. So um, just wanted to catch up a little bit with Graham. Graham, you have a new book at the show, To Have and to Hold, which is your... And you have a fantastic comics career in that you were working in the 90s as part of that whole 90s crowd. And then you quit to do tattoos, but now you've come back with two graphics, you know, a good dog, a big favorite. We've talked about that on the podcast in the past, and now to have and to hold is your second comeback book. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, uh, I shouldn't have stopped. Mm-hmm. Ah. I shouldn't, I, I didn't mean to stop, you know, but, uh, I just got distracted by tattooing. I was making a living and, and, uh, and who knew that comics would ever blow up so big? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just missed it, you know. I, I, and and uh, I, uh, uh, I got together with uh, my partner Susan, and um, she totally inspired me to get back into comics back in like 2006 or something. And uh, and it was like a conversation with her that's invented Good Dog, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and it took me forever to make it. I worked on it for like five years, and it's only like a hundred pages long. Like it was a slow process trying right. to get my chops back. And then the minute I finished it, I was I decided that since it takes so long, I'd better not let the grass burn my feet. So <laughs> I uh, I started to work on this uh, noir mystery kind of a deal to have it to hold. And uh, it's twice as long, and I did it in a year less. So I'm hoping to be able to keep that trend up where I can. Maybe have the next book be out only three years right, after the, you know. Right. So, well, what so, kind of comics were you doing in the 90s? I did two graphic novels and a short story. Um, 
the first one is called The Big Wheels, and that was like in 93, and that was the thing that I kind of blindly submitted to Fantagraphics, and they bit. And uh, it's a stream of consciousness story about life in the big city. And the main character is the city itself. It just kind of, it just moves from character to character. There'd be like a scene where someone's making a sandwich and then they go outside and they cross the street and they pass somebody else and the camera follows the new person, etc. Mm, right. And so everyone, there's a whole giant ensemble cast of characters that all get a little scene. And you just start at like six in the morning and you go till midnight or whatever. And it's just like a day in the life of the city. And it was like not super deep or anything, but... You know, I, I just thought, well, this sounds like something I could do, you know. Um, I think ideas have always been really hard mm-hmm. for me. I'm an artist, not a writer. And I wish I were a, a writer, you know. And I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. But it's not, that's not my first thing. Yeah. Well, I think you did a very good job with Good Dog. Um, I love that book. I mean, it was it was an animal comic. I'm a big fan of animal comics, which are this whole kind of subgenre of, of comics that that go from funny animals to as with your book it was real I mean you know in the world dogs right who could think and talk basically I was thinking more watership down as opposed to uh, mouse or uh, pogo or you know what I mean you know they're basically real animals but they can talk and you know the conceit is that animals can reason and and, and have conversations and you know it uh, obviously is a whole bunch of like if you go too far down that road then you have to really invent a whole world and I didn't want to I just wanted to have it's basically people right you know they just look like animals yeah well I would say it's like maybe Black Beauty also in that vein as well because it's it's about like an abused dog right who uh, who finds a, a place in a pack of dogs and there's a lot of like drama that happens among the dogs yeah it all it all started from a the concept of like well dogs need somebody to follow like dogs are born followers they need somebody to like give them a purpose you know because we domesticated them and that's what they're all about and um so stray dogs must be super neurotic and have bad dreams and not and, and not know what they're supposed to be doing and uh and so it's just exploring that idea mm-hmm. and uh so it's just like this hobo dog that's just looking for a place to belong you know and and that's obviously one of those universal themes um and uh, it was fun to do, you know, it was a nice way to get back into drawing and writing and everything. Yeah. Now, with, uh, but but what was, I mean, you got a good response to it, you know, I mean, was it, and like you said, that was it then that you realized that you'd quit too soon, like the time had come for comics? I think I just realized how much I missed it, you know, it was just really fun just doing it again, and, and uh, it's, I've just always loved it, and I just you just you get out of it like you just lose the habit you know and I, I had stopped buying a lot of comics and wasn't reading that many comics I was busy doing other stuff and I just I realized I was missing it you know it was just something that I love doing you know there's no money in it or anything it's just it's just because you love it right and right. Uh, uh, I just uh, I'm just really glad it was like it was like putting on an old pair of shoes or something it was like I was really glad to get back into it. It was really fun. Right. Now, To Have and To Hold is um, another uh, a dark... Well, it's a dark tale. It's a, it's a noir. And uh, what are the themes of... Uh, I'd say maybe the theme of this one is about how people just manage to s- screw themselves yeah, up. Yeah. No it's, matter what. <laughs> it's one of those things where, like I say, I'm not really a writer. And I think that 
the themes and the concepts of what a book is really about are not discovered until you're about halfway through. Uh, so this one started with a plot. I'm like, I want to write a detective movie or a noir story, you know? And I'm thinking, all my books are movies in my brain. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking this is going to be like one of those 1960s, 1970s kind of a, uh, anti-hero noir things like uh, maybe Fat City or... Uh, Hopscotch or Killing of a Chinese Bookie or some of these kind of like small mm -hmm. movies from the 70s and um, and I was just trying to come up with a plot you know and uh, and and then once I had my plot I just started writing it and eventually I discovered what the book was about what some of the more personal themes were and who I was really interested in like you like I my focus on who I was interested in shifted during the writing of the thing you know mm -hmm. And the, 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 the person that you start out being all about winds up not being where the heart of the book is to mm -hmm. me. Right. And, uh, and that's always the case. And now that I know that, you know, and I've done it a couple of times now, and now I kind of realize, so the book I'm working on now is a, another story, but I'm doing it the same way. I, mm -hmm. I know that it'll come to me what it's about when mm -hmm. I'm halfway through. And I'll have to go back and add a whole bunch more pages and right, change right, chapters right. and do all this stuff. But What's... This is, What's the plot of To Have and To Hold? What's that? What is the story? Well, the, the, gist the, the essential story? gist is that uh, there's a grumpy ex-cop in an unhappy marriage, and he he's, works for a security firm now, and uh, he discovers his wife's cheating on him and with a banker, and uh, he decides he's going to rob the bank and frame the banker mm -hmm. you know, as a way to get back at his wife, right? It's going to be like, it's going to be his revenge as he's going to get this banker thrown in jail for a bank robbery. And then it won't be traced to him because it's a bank robbery, right? No one's going to be looking for a personal motive. And that's the plot. And then it all unravels and bad things happen. And it's, right. it's noir, right? Like, and, uh, and that was the idea. And I just started writing it. And the wife was just sort of the wife character when you start, but then she becomes her own character the more you write. And then she, you go back and you add a bunch more stuff about her. And then there's other members of the gang that are in on the heist. Mm -hmm. And then you wind up going back and adding more about them. And it just becomes this whole world. Right. Well, I have not been able to read the book yet. Uh, so I apologize for that. But I, I'm definitely looking forward to doing it. Um, I, I really, like I said, I was a big fan of Good Dog. And this sounds like something I right up my alley as a matter of fact um, so but your, your day job is as a tattoo artist now yeah. and I will say in the 90s probably there was I mean that's when tattooing really took off here in the United yeah. States so sure, it kind of was a like big, a, a big boom right yeah. around that yeah. yeah so I mean uh, you know no one can really blame you for, for following the, the money yeah well it was, but it's it, it was it, that again um, where is your shop by the it's way it's in Hollywood and it makes it sound like we must be rolling in it, but it's really hard to make a living in LA as yeah. tattooists. There's a million shops. What's the name of your shop? If you want Purple Panther Tattoos, it's on uh, it's on Sunset Boulevard. You know, you're there. not going to believe this, but I have one tattoo, and that's where I got it. <laughs> you're kidding me? No. When did you get it? Did uh, I do long, it? No, <laughs> no, you didn't do it. No, it was a long time ago. It was in the early nineties. Right. Yeah, I didn't yes. start working there until '95. Yeah, no, you weren't there. So this is insane. I had no idea. <laughs> Of this, I'm the owner now, so you yeah. come back anytime. All right, well, it does need a touch up. Yeah, so after so. 20 years, so um, yeah, by. yeah, come by and get the uh, get the. But that's a good that's a good shop. I remember. Uh, well, again, this was before your tenure there, but I do remember like. Um, uh, uh, who was there? Um, Shannon Hoon, the late Shannon Hoon. A lot of them are late, actually. 
uh, <laughs> of Blind Melon was always getting his tattoos there and stuff. So, anywho, but uh, but that is it is a well situated uh, shop. <laughs> all right, you know we're doing okay. Yeah, and we had a tough time during the recession, but we're we're coming back. Right? Is there like like what's the trend now in tattoos? Um, it's kind of what you see a lot of at the Comic Con. Actually, it's personal. It's there's a there's a, a large element of what they used to call twee mm-hmm. uh, involved in tattooing now. Kind of cute personal things that speak to a tattoo getting public that are I feel like they probably spend a lot of time at home on the internet and um, and and have like their own like little worlds that they inhabit and, and people will bring in drawings that they've made or that a friend has made or they found on Tumblr or something and there's it's it's you know, like I think the classic thing that most people think of tattoos as being is like being about a being a badass. It's like a skull with a mohawk and lightning bolts coming out of right, it or something, right? right? That's sort of the and, But now it's like a little tree, or it's a, a baby owl, or something. You know, it's it's uh, there's a lot. It's a I'm seeing a lot of downsizing and a lot of real little personal kind, and also a handcrafted. I did, you know, almost as if people are wanting a tattoo that looks like they could have done it themselves or that they got it in the woods, you know, like a, like there's a folk art. <laughs> they got it in the woods. There's like a folk art quality that people are looking for, that's, I think, that's, to some degree. That's fascinating. And I I'm sure it's different from city to city, but that's mm-hmm. what I'm seeing a lot of in yeah. Hollywood. Right well, I do think, um, I lived in Hollywood back in the day. I lived there and I, I left in the mid-90s and... Um, uh, you know, now it's like it was definitely the height of the well. I mean, I would say like um, alternative me- music was coming in then Nirvana and all that stuff. So uh, it was kind of the end of the heavy metal era on the the strip. But um, definitely badass idea, totally was what was ruling the whole tattoo world at that point. I, it does strike me. Uh, I I do have this I was born too soon kind of feeling sometimes when I go to L.A. because it does seem like this whole anime cosplay lifestyle not just something you do at cons there's like a huge lifestyle that's that's set up up around it there Graham is nodding while all this happens yes he is this I I've 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 picked up on something and um, yeah it does seem like the tattooing is is definitely doesn't have a sense of irony to it yeah no there's a definite there's a definite I think it's I don't know I feel like most of my customers now are more introverted and they're artistic or they're tangentially involved in one of the arts industries like maybe they're animators or illustrators or something like that and there's a fantasy element I think to a lot of people's stuff and it's it's and it's I don't know it's hard to say I mean you know we're not doing bikery stuff so much anymore. Right, it's it's right. it's more unicorn. It's more unicorns. Yeah, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. yeah, the unicorn culture. Um, do you see any connection with comics in this? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think I think the internet is the the was it a Venn diagram where circles yeah. overlap? I think the internet is the thing that makes them overlap. Mm-hmm. I think people are getting a ton. I mean every design that someone brings into the shop is on their phone and they found it online or they've taken a picture with their phone or something and 
it's the cute, it's the thing that connects everyone to everybody else, and all the various industries are all connected through the spider web of the internet, and uh, so there's a huge overlap from animation and illustration and cartooning and tattoo and it's all tattooing is almost like clothing you know right like, right like yeah. if you're if you're a certain kind of person and you're into this kind of stuff you're going to buy certain kinds of clothes that kind of fit your lifestyle and you're going to get a couple of tattoos that fit that and it's 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 part of people's look i think we're just an accessory right they can be a personal yeah. right 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 thing for people you yeah, know yeah and uh and it speaks to who they are and and it and it to some degree, depending on how this goes, will mark them in a certain period of history, yeah. right? Like big tribal armbands, say mm-hmm. 1990s, well, right? There, and there is a famous, uh, well, famous in my head anyway, Matt Groening did a Life and Hell cartoon back in the 90s. Oh, yeah, two old guys, yeah, right? Yeah, the two old guys in the, in the old folks' home with their 90s tattoos, and, you know, they're, then they're, you know, it's a couple of, like, stretched out earlobes, and, you know, saying, oh, I remember seeing Pearl Jam, and... Yeah, um, it's, it's, that's, and so... There's trends in tattooing, which is weird because the effects are lifelong. Yeah. Uh, but you can totally look at someone's work and say, "Oh, so you were getting all your stuff at this time?" <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it, that's so funny. I think there's probably an element of that now. I think there's going to be either body locations for tattoos or a certain kind of tattooing that'll be marked as the mid two thousands or something. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah, and, totally. Uh, and I have no idea what's coming next. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, wonderful. I do feel that this whole kind of uh, culture. Uh, I, I'm. I don't know what it's called because I'm old, but uh, this cosplay culture. I guess it was what our Comic Con culture because it it is definitely tied in with all these movies and with cartoons, as you say. And uh, and it's really about self expression and that really like I even I would say when people you know the, the tattoo you see, I'm, I'm patting my bicep here it's like that's where you used to get your tattoo was right on your arm you know a tough guy thing and now it's like you get the sleeve on your forearm which is also like oh well when you're getting a job no one's gonna care that you have a unicorn tattoo you know yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah. the stigma is gone the the danger is gone I think that's true and. Uh... Yeah, it's it's just different, you know, and it'll be different again. Oh yeah, you know? yeah, totally. Uh, but it is it is is fascinating how it all interacts. Um, well, well, Graham, you are going to, but but you're that this is only your day job. You're back to being a cartoonist. So. Yeah, I uh, my love is comics, you know, and I love tattooing, and I enjoy doing it on people. But if I was, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do a bunch of tattoos for free, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like comics, I'm basically doing. For, for free because I love it you well, know like that's that's what I you know like that's I don't have to do comics you know I, go on I'm sorry it's just but that's if, it, if the situation is reversed you know mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I would be doing tattooing as as my as my vocation love I think it would be comics that's know? it really really interesting though what you just said because um, like I there unfortunately I think that's one of the reasons why cartooning is a very low paying gig it's like people just seem to love doing it so much you know and they will do it for free like uh, you know doing web comics for free yeah, it's, yeah. it's like there's a huge huge industry out there that is based on unpaid work that subsequently well, don't get me wrong don't get me wrong yeah, you know yeah. I would love to make a ton of money yeah. doing comics just buy a million of my yes, books and yes. I'll be go Fantagraphics is yeah. the publisher it's on Amazon you yeah. can buy Graham's books please check them it's out it's just all about sales you know mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I, I, I'm not foolish enough to think there's ever going to be 
a movie deal or a million sales or anything mm-hmm. of anything I do, and I know that, and that's fine. And I and I just I just love it, and I just want to do it anyway. Right. Well, there you go. I think that's our closing note right there. So, uh, but again, please check out Graham Chaffee's work, uh, published by Fantagraphics, and um, his new book to have and to hold. Graham, thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome to more to come. PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novels publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, welcome Scott Snyder, writer for Batman, uh, a number of years, fiction writer as well. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being on More to Come. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, look, you've been writing you've been writing Batman for what since about 2011? I mean, you've been kind of Yeah, like even before. Yeah, even before, yeah. huh? Um, yeah, we did Detective and it's been for it feels like I've like had an apartment in Gotham for as long as I can remember <laughs> at this point. So, it's always rainy residence. and gloomy, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, you've taken a residence in Gotham for sure. Uh, well, you know, we did, I know PW did an author profile of you a while back, so um, we're, we're going to get you in PW in a different way on the podcast here. Um, but, but but as I was saying before, I'm really interested, uh, I really, uh, you know, I'm a, a longtime superhero fan. Uh, I, I'm not as big a super, superhero fan as I used to be, but every now and then I run across a story that just grabs me and... Uh, the all-star Batman that you've done with my own worst enemy, with John Romita doing uh, um, the pencils and uh, Danny, what, and Danny, Mickey doing the inks, really grabbed me. Um, uh, it, it, but, but before I ask you questions about that, I do want to know what is it that keeps you so fo- uh, fixated on Batman that you've been able to to write him, you know, over these many years and still, you know, still for it to be a fresh and exciting uh, project for you. That's a great question. I mean, it's strange because. When I started, you know, each time I think maybe I have one story in me, and then it just keeps going. And I, th- I think what it is is just that he exists at this intersection of pathology and heroism that's really, I think, just extremely interesting to me, where he, he's sort of, um, he's one of the few superheroes with no powers mm-hmm. who sort of, who takes tragedy as his fuel. You know, this terrible thing happened to him as a kid, mm-hmm. and thereby he kind of moves forward and says, I'm going to use that as motivation to turn myself into this pinnacle of human achievement. And there's a lesson in that that I think is kind of both incredibly tragic, mm-hmm. because he's almost he's almost sacrificing himself every night for the people of the city, and then also extremely heroic, because he sort of dedicates himself fully to his, you know, to making sure that the thing that happened to him as a kid doesn't happen to anybody else. And so there's something sort of deeply you know, inspiring about him and then also deeply tragic. So it's that kind of Scott interesting to me, you know, year after year. Okay. Well, it's it's very interesting as you describe him because I mean within the DC universe, I mean he's one of the darker heroes. Um certainly when you contrast him with the the other group, the other two members of the Trinity of, uh, you know, uh, Diana and Superman. Um, he has this, um, you know, he has this sort of aura of somehow almost even being on the other side, and yet, you know, he still seems to function as a heroic presence. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting you say that. I mean, I think the the Batman that I grew up with in the eighties, I grew up in New York, mm-hmm. in the city, um, was very much sort of an urgent, immediate version where he, you know, took on 
gang violence and he, he fought things that had to do with the Cold War. And it was, I, I sort of was blessed to grow up in an era when Batman was extremely um, relevant mm-hmm. and through Frank Miller and Denny O'Neill and, and just a bunch of great creators. And so for us, you know, I think one of the things that's been interesting is trying to think about how to reposition him in a post 9-11 mm-hmm. sort of world. And so as much as the Batman that I grew up with was darker and did have that sort of um, almost demonic, obsessive quality, and ours certainly is obsessive, we've made a big effort to kind of switch switch his, um, I guess, switch his sort of core mission so that it's less about scaring um, villainous people back into the shadows than it is sort of bringing, you know, brave people out into the light. Mm-hmm. So as, as dark as he's been historically, I think we've, you know, not just on All-Star, but DC in general made an effort to to sort of reposition him a little bit. I think, you know, what we did with our run in Batman and what I try to do with All-Star especially is is have him face off with things that scare me about right now, <laughs> scare me for my kids and all of those things sort of personified by these zany villains or monsters, but sure. are sort of, you know, thinly veiled extensions of things I think are in the air right now. So with this one, with my own worst enemy, you know, it was written during the election <laughs> and there's a sense of, for me at least less Batman is, you know, he's an independent, he's not going to take sides. But I think the thing that was so, so frightening, I think, to me during during that whole process was just how ugly people got towards each other, the sense of the breakdown of discourse, people sort of backing away from the table, retreating into these kind of very solipsistic, mm-hmm. you know, um, enclaves, and, and me too. And, and I think the story is largely about Two-Face saying, you know, Harvey Dent saying, mm-hmm. that's how people are. They're, they essentially have an ugly side they hide from the world, which is selfish and self-concerned. And they don't care about other people. And I'm going to bring that out and prove to you with this big bet I'm going to put on the table that mm-hmm. they are that way and not they're not heroes the way you are. And they would prefer to be villains. So in that way, we've tried hard to sort of move Batman away a bit from that kind of figure of intimidation towards a figure who sort of inspires and, and ultimately is a little bit more about, ins- you know, uh, sort of engendering bravery. Well, you bring out a, a key uh, plot point in My Own Worst Enemy, and, and as you discuss uh, Harvey Dent's sort of projection of his own persona onto the world. I mean, that's Harvey. It's, he is indeed part good and part, uh, you know, frightening, <laughs> completely frightening. Yeah. Um, um, but could you actually, just for, for the readers out there who have who may not have uh, read My Own Worst Enemy, which is uh, you know also a part of the uh, the very interesting rebirth uh, revamp at DC Comics, you know, could you tell us a little bit about the plot of my, or you know uh, just a quick summary? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, after doing Batman for a long time in the main book, um, what I wanted to do with All Star was to step away from working with any one singular sort of team and examine each Batman villain and, and sort of think about, try and write about what um, makes them scary to me personally, what kind of personal demons they speak to, but also ways in which they're in conversation with sort of the zeitgeist right now, why I think they're not just enduringly scary, but but urgently scary right now. So with this story, I've been wanting to do something with Two-Face 
you know, just from a from a personal standpoint, because for those of you that are unfamiliar with the character, he he used to be sort of a one of Batman's allies. He yeah. he grew up with him. He's he was a lawyer in Gotham, and then due to this terrible accident um, where the mob threw acid in his face, he becomes this kind of villain, this dual personality um, sort of villain that terrorizes Batman constantly and mm. does all kinds of crimes with with you know with with numbers with uh, sort of uh, number the number two and theme you know all kinds of dual themes and so on but mm-hmm. he's been in largely a joke villain for you know for a long time as well there's certainly dark stories about him but he can be a bit corny and and what i wanted to do here was try and try and you know keep the fun with him but make him darker and have him speak to you know, both things that I think I, I certainly think about with myself and I think that I, I write about in other books as well from prose to this, which are, you know, the ways in which sometimes you go through dark periods and think you're essentially the sum of your personal failings or you're, you know, that you're the person that you want to be or the person that you, you hope to be or the, the, the good qualities that you have are just either out of reach or sort of a facade and that you're at heart some kind of selfish creature you know and that's it and you know uh, he he's very scary in that regard by looking at you and saying i see the side of your face that you don't want to look at that's the real one so the story essentially takes him i wanted to do something that was really different and sort of spoke to that and spoke to things that were in the air and so the story is, is a crazy road trip almost grindhouse death race story. I wanted to take Batman out of Gotham and put him in mm-hmm. sort of wheat fields and broken down towns and farmhouses and diners and, you know, really bring in a lot of Americana. And so the idea is that Batman is taking Harvey upstate to a clinic where he thinks he can finally cure him of this two-faced personality. And along the way, Harvey brings their plane down and, and profess, gives this... um. Uh, proposes this kind of bet to the entire country or to the state that Gotham is in and says, everyone, listen to me, you know, through the news channels. He says, if you stop us from going where we're going, I'll give you uh, the the three biggest crime bosses in Gotham. Uh, And if you let me, but if you let me get where I'm going and and he cures me, I'm going to release every secret I know about, about everybody. And he's hooked into sort of He's hooked in in a way, almost like a spider in a web, to sort of every yeah. everything that you do that you don't want anyone to know about. Harvey knows, you know, anything online, <laughs> anything behind closed doors. He's sort of he's so um, central to the sort of Gotham crime scene that there's nothing that you could have gotten away with in this story that he wouldn't expose about you. And so it comes down to this kind of race where the two of them are are, are trying to sort of they've put on the betting table the I guess the 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 psyche or the core of Gotham, you know, and, and of the, the surrounding, the surrounding nation, the state and the nation where they say, you know, I, Batman deeply believes that our heroic impulses outweigh or will win over our sort of darker and more self-interested urges and Two-Face believes the opposite. And so John Romita, who I've always loved, he actually lives like right down the street from me. Yeah, I'm really, walking I, as I can almost his see his art house. is fabulous. I, I, I'll just jump in. I just wanted to say that sure. uh, I think Romita's art is just really fabulous in this whole story. But go on. <laughs> oh, no, him and Danny and Dean, the, yes. the, the color Dean White too. They're just terrific. And uh, and uh, you know, I I brought it up to them and said I met them. I met uh, John in a bar here in town where we are, and I was just like. Uh, you know, uh, I want to do this story, but it's really unconventional. It's going to take us out of Gotham, and sorry, I'm passing a house with dogs. We're gonna, I'm gonna take him out of Gotham. I like dogs. Get him in a, get him in a, uh, 
you know, out in the fields and the farms and the sort of, you know, uh, the real barren lands around the outskirts of Gotham. And it'll be a very different thing. So John was sort of like, no gargoyles, no Arkham. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is going to be sort of sunshine and, you know, barns and rivers and trucks. And he was really excited. So the beauty of it or the fun of it was sort of both getting to do a story that was, you know, different than anything had been done by us at least but i think done by anybody before and also sort of having that difference speak to what the story's about for us it was two-facing you've been living in your own enclave you don't know what people are really like let me show you you know what let me show you human nature let me show you the darker side not just of gotham but everywhere you don't look at and so it felt like it fit sort of what the story was about and allowed us to you know go as deep with it as we could and I love this one. It was really, it was a favorite arc. So I'm, I'm really happy with it and very grateful to John and, and Danny and Dean and Steve Wands, the letter for doing it with me. Well, that, that point, that plot point, that bet that <clears throat> Two-Face makes, it's a very gripping um, hook to the story. And I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to yell, give any spoilers, but I will tell readers that it, uh, there are some surprising results um, from the citizens <laughs> of Gotham. <laughs> so, you pick the book up, um, but but uh, but Harvey is sort of. Uh, I mean, he's a key element in this road trip. Um, but there's this. Uh, uh, this is the other thing that gripped me. This is also. Um, it, it's like a rogues gallery, or it's an all. I mean, you talk about all star Batman. It's kind of an all star group of of villains. I mean, in some ways, this is what I meant before. I was talking about. There's a throwback nature to it uh, uh, by so many villains like. Uh, well, the penguin and and um, <laughs> you know Killer Croc and I mean um, a Great White to have all of these villains, all of these members of various competing Gotham syndicates, um, you know, focused on Batman again, all in one issue. Yeah, it, 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 one of the great things about it was sort of, you know, if it's about villains and it's about villainy and it's about Two Face saying, you know, embrace your inner villain it was sort of an invitation for me and the team to just bring in every <laughs> corny and awesome and scary Batman villain in history. So they're all after him because none of them want him to get where he's going. They all want the reward or they want to stop him from sort of exposing them. So he gets to bring in everybody from Firefly, Killer Moth, you know, KGB yes. is one of my favorites from the 90s. Oh, that so, guy. Yeah, he's a, you know, yes. <laughs> and reinvent them. So it, it's, yes. it's meant to be sort of a, I guess in some ways it's almost like a kind of, we meant it as almost like a subversive fun nod to the reader saying in a story that's about how we love our heroes more than we, or than we should our, you know, we love our villains and how we, we want to be, we, we emulate our heroes more than we do our villains. You throw in every fun villain and you kind of undermine your own argument <laughs> because they're sort of, they're more fun to look at, they're more fun to read about. And so there's almost sort of a, we're trying to kind of nod at the fact that there is some truth to what Two-Face is saying, at least, at least on a fun level. So, yeah, well, yeah it was a lot of, it was, it was a to, joy. To bring these, uh, uh, these, these legacy villains in and actually kind of revive them in many ways. I mean, you know, we haven't seen the Penguin really and you could, you know, you could say, oh, well, he's kind of corny, but you really kind of gave him um, his edge back, I think, in this. Thanks. Yeah, the, the fun again was to try and sort of walk that, walk that, you know, razor where you're, you know, keeping the fun keeping the story fun keeping it always sort of a page turner with batman having bat knuckles and crazy gadgets and you know constantly yes, surprised some kind of element of, of 
but yeah, you, no. you lifted the level, the gadgetry level, uh, uh, to a new, uh, up to a new level, if I may say so, of being clever <laughs> and fun uh, and, and action packed. Thanks. Yeah, it was. We wanted it to just feel like, you know, it, it, we wanted it to sort of feel like a summer blockbuster. Where on the one hand, it again is is very deeply about, for me at least, things that terrify me right now in the air, mm-hmm. things that you know were 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 very dark. Um, but for, I always think the best way to do one of those stories, especially if you're doing something like this, that's sort of a, you know, a, a big headliner for DC kind of stuff, then you go the other way where you sort of sugarcoat it or you bury it in sort of the joy, you know, and you, you, you also, you make it feel celebratory in that way. So for me, it was, it was if it's going to be about villains, I didn't want it to feel heavy and grim and all of that. I wanted it to feel like, let's see Penguin in a limo at a gas station in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> fight it out with like, you know, some duck hunting dudes and let's see <laughs> them on a, on a steam ferry, a gambling, you know, a casino boat going over Niagara Falls and everything well, you never get to see. You're in just Batman, describing you one of the great play. scenes in the book there for, for fans out there. <laughs> Thanks. Um, also, <laughs> yeah, um, I, just, I want to go, go with that. you know, just grind. It was fun. Um, I also want to mention uh, Batman uh, is grimly humorous in this book as well, and uh, he's been funnier in his own distinct way than I think we've seen Batman be in a long time. Thanks. I always my. <laughs> it's funny because everybody always thinks that he's so he's dark, but I think over the last seven years, one of the things I've come to realize more and more year by year is that he's really funny. I mean, he's he is to me like the humor is always sort of. Um, it's an arrogant humor. The Lego movie really hits it perfectly, yeah. but it, he, it's never a joke at his own expense. It's always a joke at everybody else's expense where he'll say something where he's like, you know, we did a story in Batman where um, where he was missing for a long time and Jim Gordon took up the role of Batman. And when he comes mm-hmm. back, he says, he finds Jim Gordon and he says, hello, Jim, who died and made you Batman? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of. That that kind of humor that's always sort of self-aggrandizing, which I, I love, because he's sort of, he's a little bit, he's a, little, you know, he, he's sort of a little bit of a jerk in that way. But you love him for it. You want, you know, he. At the end of the day, I mean, like I was saying earlier, I think Batman is a character who everyone always jokes. You know, he thinks he's awesome and he always wins. But there's really a deep, there's a deep lesson in that because again, he's a character who essentially suffered this random, meaningless event, this tragedy as a kid that had no purpose and instead he turns his life into this kind of engine of purpose and says you know i do win i win despite um impossible odds despite not having powers despite you know challenges that seem insurmountable because i'm determined to and i think you know having written him for a while and having gone to a lot of conventions and met a lot of the readership you realize that that as funny as he is and as, as silly as it is to think of a comic book character as important to people it, it really does i mean i think of what he meant to me as a kid and what, what he means what mm-hmm. i want him to mean for kids and what he means to me now and you see people from around the country from people that serve overseas to people that live on the road to just you know kids growing up and they they talk about that element of him the fact that ultimately he's the one that says get up we're gonna win and even if he's sort of it seems like impossible to the point of being laughable or a joke he he makes you believe it just a couple more questions, and I'll let you go. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Duke Thomas and how he fits into Batman's 
life now. I mean, throughout the book, you know, uh, various uh, associates of Batman say, this the new sidekick? And Batman <laughs> always responds, well, I'm trying something new. What, what, how would yeah, you talk well, about Duke Thomas? Yeah, sure. I mean, Duke is a character that we, we've been um, we've been working in for a long time. He sort of came about at the beginning of Batman's origin when the very first year he was Batman sort of in our run and he's been a part in and out of, of different aspects of Batman's life since. And so what we wanted to do is instead of sort of having somebody who just takes up the mantle of Robin, because there've been so many Robins and on top of that now, uh, Bruce has a son, Damien, who's sort right. of a, a very, very a big staple of the Bat family mm-hmm. as Robin. We wanted to, to see how would Batman sort of approach a new generation of, of allies. You know, he wouldn't really want a sidekick, but mm-hmm. he he is a father figure and he wants to train people um, that are coming up behind him. And so the thing that I love about Duke is that from the moment he first appeared in, in the mythology in Gotham, he was always saying, I don't really need you, Batman. I'm yes. going to do my own thing. And, he, and I should point out for the people who don't know, he's an African-American kid. He is right, and he, he grew up. He grew up in the Narrows. His mother is a social worker. His father is a teacher. He's a great kid. But the thing that I love about him is that he's always sort of he's handed these things by Batman, like, "Hey, be Robin. Hey, be my sidekick. Hey," and he always sort of rejects it and says, "I'm going to find my own way of doing it." And so he's sort of going through a journey, I think, beside Batman that, that is inspiring to Bruce, even as Bruce is sort of you know. Um, is instructing him and teaching him the ways of being a crime fighter. So Duke to me has a, has a very bright future in Gotham. We're going to, we're going to sort of put him in his own, in his own role very, very soon this summer. So I'm, I'm excited. He's, he, he's a character that means a lot to me and means a lot to a lot of us that work in the back group, because for a while he even led a, a sort of a group called PR Robin that right, sure. really yeah. reconfigured, mm-hmm. he reconfigured what Robin was, where he said, Robin doesn't need to be Batman's sidekick. Robin is the generation of kids coming up after, inspired by Batman in their own ways. And I love the idea that it sort of speaks to the ways in which kids today, like my kids, they don't have like a central station by which they get their sort of their pop culture, their inspirations, their music, any of it. They sort of find it on their own. It's a very Mm -hmm. do-it-yourself quality to this kind of, you know, this post you know, internet generation. And so for me, Duke is very much a part of that. And so the hero he's going to be is sort of begin is, is set up here, but he's, um, his big story is just about to begin. So I was really thrilled to be able to include him. That's really great. Well, I'm going to, I want, I've got one more question to close with. And I, I read, I, I found this interview uh, with you online uh, and it was a discussion of should Batman kill someone? And I think this question <laughs> in the modern era of superhero comics comes up a lot, you know, um, uh, in some ways, uh, and, and what I want to do, I, I'm, I'm curious to you think that uh, on, uh, the question of him killing and compare that also with the question of violence, um, violence in popular culture today almost defines uh, it as serious material because of the, the ability, I think, for in the films to make it ultra-violent. Uh, and also, as superheroes have kind of stepped across the line of the sort of campy world of superheroes that I grew up in, um, to the world where you need a level of verisimilitude, of, to, of, of, of grittiness uh, in a new era. So I'm curious, uh, yeah. maybe Batman shouldn't kill but what about the levels of violence? I'm just curious your take on it because this is a pretty violent issue, even though it's it thoroughly is. entertaining. Yeah, 
<laughs> it is. I mean, we always shoot for that sort of PG-13, you know, realm a bit where, you know, for us, I think, I, I mean, for me, the big takeaway for Batman is this, like, you know, I don't write it for children, um, sure. but I don't write it to try and be sensational or egregious with the violence ever. The violence, the real sort of darkness in it, I hope, is psychological and emotional. And ultimately, in terms of what you're saying about now, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of of skewing dark with the with these characters. I mean, as much as um, this story has a kind of level of, um, I think, kinetic and dynamic sort of grindhouse violence. Um, it's the violence itself, like KGB, you know, stabbing Batman sure. and those things. Yes, <laughs> it's really is meant is is meant to sort of be more of a throwback to. Um, that kind of 70s Mad Max fun than it is to be something that's really upsetting. Whereas, you know, the psychological sort of violence, I think that Harvey perpetrates on him where Harvey says, you know, there's some ugly surprises in this story. I think those are where we're really trying to, to hurt. So for, for me, I think that the way we've tr tried to, to do Batman, both in All-Star and when I was doing it as the main book, was to, to actually make him a lot brighter than he had been before. Um, and in terms of, you know, that and, and, and skewing darker light, no, I, I'm very I'm very opposed to, you know, making our characters, the characters that are the most aspirational or um, that are sort of our, our core characters darker. You know, I, I really think, you know, there's, I know the argument, I understand the argument that the darker things get or the more mature audiences get, the darker you need to go. But I would point to things like Star Wars, Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, you know, it really is movie by movie or book by book. So when you have something like Deadpool, that's you know, mm -hmm. R straight R, but Deadpool has always been a character who's hilariously R R rated. Um, Superman is not, and nor is mm -hmm. Batman, in my opinion. I mean, even the you know the Burton films were, were, were dark, but they were still PG. I mean, I saw yeah. those when I was you know twelve, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and eleven. And so, for me, I, I really no, I'm not a fan of of making these characters darker. I think that the brighter you go with them, honestly, the more potent they'll be in dark times, as long as you're addressing things that are in the zeitgeist. I mean, I think there's a way to make a Batman movie that's just as moving and as sort of relevant as Logan without mm -hmm. it having a very grim, dark feel where he's killing people or or doing anything that seems, you know, darker than core. I, I honestly believe you make movies about the, the darker it gets, you know, the, the the harder it is to be the kind of hero they need to be, and that's doubly inspiring and exponentially more relevant when you see it when you see it sort of depicted um, elegantly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I, I'm I'm much more on that side of I, I'm always up for a reboot, and I'm always up for new interpretations of the characters. And to point to something like Logan, um, there are stories that I think could that could be done with Batman that should be very dark and mature. Stories at the end of his life, stories where he fights the Joker. But in terms of um, should he, in general, skew darker, or should he begin to do things as a character that go against code, like kill or torture or those things? I really think you you begin to turn him into a different figure altogether. And once that thing, once those things start to happen, so I'm I'm a big opponent of of, of going that elastic with this character's core values. Well, you 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 certainly managed to 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 create a version of Batman that seems to hold all these threads in a really, really engrossing equilibrium, uh, both the, his connection with the character we've already known, a, a sense of, of, of being brought up to date, these villains, the humor, and, and as you said yourself, the really, I guess, really destructive 
relationship with uh, Harvey Dent, which goes back to them being kids, in some ways even more twisted than the relationship he has with the Joker. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna recommend people go out. The trade paperback uh, collection of uh, My Own Worst Enemy is out now. Uh, Scott, look, thank you so much uh, for being on More to, More to Come. Oh, no, it's such a pleasure. I, I Honestly, I'd love to do it any time. I'm a fan, and it means a lot to get to talk to you about it. So, <laughs> thanks, thanks much, Scott. Really appreciate it. Anytime. And also, we just want to let fans know that the next periodical issue of All-Star Batman number 10 goes on sale on May 10th, the first ally, and it's uh, with uh, art by um, Raphael Albuquerque and, of course, written by Scott Snyder. So...